Backchat. 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 Politics and current affairs. Backpack. Backchat. Backchat. Your alternative to talk back. Yes, indeed, you are listening to Backchat here on FBI Radio, the freshest rap of news and current affairs. I'm Swetha Das. And I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. And as always, we're going to give you the news you haven't heard on your airwaves this week. First up is Antoinette Latouf from Media Diversity Australia to explain why, shocker, Australian newsrooms aren't diverse enough. After that, we chat with media lecturer Dr. Belinda Barnett about Google's controversial open that's been circling around this week. But as always, we want to hear from you. Do you care if news presenters aren't multicultural? Good question. Mm. Join the conversation on 0409-945-945 or tweet us at Backchat FBI. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. When you tune into the news, who are you seeing? A study by Media Diversity Australia has found, quite unsurprisingly, that 75% of reporters, presenters and commentators are from an Anglo-Celtic background. Contrary to the thoughts of everyone's favourite Yugoslav, German and British host Carl Sevenovic, the cultural makeup of our newsrooms doesn't reflect our multicultural society. Our first guest is Antoinette Latouf, the Director of Media Diversity Australia, to discuss their new report, Who Gets to Tell Australian Stories. Hi there, Antoinette. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. So, your report into media diversity has revealed that Aussie TV is overwhelmingly white, with more than three quarters of presenters and reporters from an Anglo-Celtic background. What does this mean for the types of stories that are being told in the media? Well, I guess the, for us, the reason we wanted to capture what some people would say is obvious, that if you have two functioning eyes, you could probably tell that our media was in no way reflective of our really diverse nation. But we thought by shining a spotlight on just um, just how profound the lack of diversity is, then the next step would be to have a conversation about what this means uh, in terms of which stories are told, how they're framed, which viewpoints are put forward, and... In light of uh, George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement, it's never been more important for us to really be critical of the government. Uh, so not only the, sorry, not the government, well, that's another diversity problem. No, be really critical of authorities, which we have seen, at least here and abroad, in terms of police authorities, but also about the media and the role media plays in telling stories of diverse and sometimes disadvantaged people. Um, and so, yeah, our... our, our our stats are damning, they're not good, they may not surprise many, but we thought it was a way to get the conversation started and to give some recommendations to the industry on how they could do better and why they should do better. So what about when it comes to senior management teams at broadcasters? Are they more diverse? Um, They're even less diverse. So we found for television news and current affairs, every national news director in the country is an Anglo-Celtic male. Even when it comes to state levels, uh, it's overwhelmingly still male. Um, at any time there is any female presence, the female presence in leadership roles at the state level or bureau chief, uh, they are Anglo-Celtic. So there's no diversity in terms of intersectional diversity. So you may have a female, but she's white. Um, and of all the states, uh, so at a state and chief editor uh, or bureau chief level, they're essentially the people who run the show, say, in Canberra or in Melbourne. Um, only one is non-European, 
um, and about a handful are European, um, and there are zero who are Indigenous. So if you think about what that means, who's at the top, of course it has a trickle-down effect on then who they hire and then which stories they greenlight. Um, so, yeah, it's, 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 it's incredibly disappointing, uh, but not entirely um, entirely surprising. But perhaps what would surprise people is that we're, we're quite lagging behind us other Western democracies, for example, in the UK and the US, where their media is not perfect, but certainly more diverse. Um, than ours, and at least they're having honest and open conversations and have strategies in place to try and change things. So on that note, the ABC's board is also predominantly white, but 67% are women. Is there an interplay between race, gender, um, and the two when it comes to media diversity? Yeah, and so that was the interesting thing we found, that any time people were applauding diverse uh, policies or thinking that they would do a good job, it kind of stopped at gender, but in terms of stopping at gender, it literally is just white women. So to date, it would suggest that the media environment um, has only progressed white women and just stopped for men of colour and women of colour. Um, and and it's not, I mean, it's not good enough. While it's good to see a um, good female representation on boards, um, and SBS too has, has good gender representation on its board, um, all the other networks have almost non-existent, non-existent or negligible levels of cultural representation on their board. And it's, it's clearly not good enough, particularly for a country that uh, is meant to be a beacon or a, a fantastic example of, of multiculturalism. Um, so, yeah, even at the ABC, we think that they're going to be having some uncomfortable conversations because when you hold the mirror to the industry um, and hold it a little too closely, not everybody's happy with what they see back at them. The report differentiates between people of Anglo, Celtic and European backgrounds. Why is this the case? Um, well, what we did in terms of our categories, they're broad. We had four categories, Anglo, Celtic, European, non-European and Indigenous. And in doing that, we mirrored what the Australian Human Rights Commission did in two reports in 2016 and 2018. And they applied these categories to looking at um, ASX 100 leadership levels at board levels. Um, and because we had the former Race Discrimination Commissioner, Tim Tinsel Pomisar, as one of our academics, um, and this is kind of a tried and tested way of doing it, um, this is the, and approved by the Human Rights Commission, Australian Human Rights Commission, that's the way we went ahead. Um, and so in, in terms of the diversity, so while Anglo-Celtic was 75%, when it came to Indigenous or non-European, so that's like, you know, that includes the Middle Easterners, Asians, Indians, Pakistan, you know, those kinds of cultural groups. We amount to about 25% of the Australian population, uh, you know, an African as well. Um, uh, but it was, we only had 6% representation in terms of presenters, reporters and commentators on screen. Um, so it's four times less than, than what our numbers are in the population. It's, it, and it's just not good enough, especially when you think about a lot of the coverage is of you know, the, the controversial coverage is of Muslim Australians or African Australians or in, in the, during the coronavirus pandemic, Chinese in particular. Um, and we think a lack of their representation um, is really not good enough because there's nobody there to challenge um, really unfair reporting on those communities. With your findings, was there a difference between commercial networks and public broadcasters like the ABC and SBS? <coughs> Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, SBS by its very charter um, did much better than everyone else. And it should be noted that that, that average of 75% is prop, propped up because SBS does well. Um, so if you were to take SBS out between ABC and the three commercial broadcasters, that 75% figure of Anglos would be even higher. 
Um, ABC's doing reasonably well. Um, obviously, they know, at least they've owned, that they've got a lot more to go. They still don't have leadership that's diverse. They don't have any um, cultural diversity in their leadership ranks. Uh, and again, any woman who's uh, in a leadership position is Anglo. And also, even for those who are on screen, um, they're not in prominent roles. They're not hosting, you know, your Q&As, your Four Corners, your 7.30. They're, they're, they're on a kind of lesser primetime slots and reporters. Uh, Nine was found to be the least diverse, even though they have an Indigenous reporter in Bookbony, and Seven had no Indigenous reporters, but their numbers were better when it came to Europeans. So, you know, be that Italian or Croatian or um, other cultural groups. And Ten was the, the best of... Kind of ten sat in the middle, the best of the commercials, but still not as diverse as the public broadcasters. Well, that's that's very surprising and interesting to know. You're listening to Back Chat on FBI Radio ninety four point five FM with Swetha and Shami. We're speaking with Antoinette Latouf from Media Diversity Australia about why broadcast newsrooms are shockingly white. Earlier, we asked if the lack of diversity in news surprised you or not. You can text in and still join in on the conversation on oh four oh nine nine four five nine four five or tweet us at Backchat FBI. And we got some texts in. Someone texted in. Um, asking if uh, we had a white reporter come to our uni and talk about race. So, yeah, I care if white journalists are commenting on things they don't have experience with. Mm. Go off. Well, imagine the audacity of <laughs> bringing in a white reporter to talk about race. That's insane. To young journalists. And <laughs> How did you not see that? Unfortunately, and that's something I, I, I raised again and again, for some reason in this country... Um, and we saw it even at the ABC. They see, uh, all networks seem to think it's okay to have a panel of three or four Anglo people talking about uh, Indigenous deaths in custody, talking about immigration, talking about asylum seekers. It, to me, it's gobsmacking that mm. they seem to think. And you know, I'm, I'm a working journalist. I work at Network Ten. I've worked at SBS, ABC. I spent a bit of time at Seven. Um, so this is an industry I'm, you know, very much embedded in and very well acquainted. Um, with, uh, but when there aren't enough people to stand up and go, hey, this isn't good enough, or hey, I've got a great idea for a panellist. I remember I was at one network and they were doing an international Women's Day panel, and the panel was three white women and a white man. I marched into the news director's office and said, who approved this? Who approved this? This is shockingly inappropriate. It's embarrassing. It has to stop. Nobody had seen it. Nobody thought anything was wrong with it until I pointed it out. So there are blind spots. And that's what a, a, a diverse team brings. They bring different different perspectives. Um, and it, 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 suffice to say, that panel did not go ahead looking like it had originally, but it would have if I hadn't been in that team environment to go, hey, guys, I think differently. Hey, guys, I think it's going to be super embarrassing if you do an international Women's Day panel with all white people and a white man. Um, but it's, it's those really bleedingly obvious things that get overlooked when people are of the same ilk and um, think the same. So, okay, this leads me to my next question. So why do you think Australia struggles when it comes to media diversity? Oh, I think they struggle because not many are willing to accept that the problem has an impact on audiences but also on business models. So many people will say, oh, okay, it's the right thing to do, it's the moral thing to do, it's the representative thing to do. But there's like a mountain of international evidence that shows that diverse workplaces are more innovative and profitable. So it's like they haven't really bought the case. They haven't, they're not convinced of what a more diverse team will do. And so the fact that they haven't embraced the impact 
and haven't tried to change it is why we are where we are. The ABC um, has really upped its efforts in the past couple of years because they've come under intense scrutiny. The SBS has to um, because of its charter. Channel 10 is really ramping up its efforts, but only because it's owned by UK and US. It's owned by CBS and Viacom. So they have that kind of international lens. But 7 and 9, they seem to just want to keep their head in the sand and... Um, not really, um, not really acknowledge the, the depth of the problem or not really uh, have a wide-ranging diversity and inclusion policy. Because then the overseas what we have, and then even some of the commercial networks, and this is one of our recommendations, is they publish their annual diversity targets and uh, data. So they'll be like, okay, we're currently at, you know, 13% um, uh, black, Asian, you know, they have different categorizations overseas. Um, and you know we're really aiming for twenty percent or whatever, and they and they they publicly disclose where they're at and where they want to be, um, and we certainly don't have that kind of um, leadership at the commercial network in Australia, unfortunately. So this is the first in-depth study of cultural diversity in Australian television news. So why has it taken so long to get these figures? Well, Media Diversity Australia started three years ago. Um, we're all working journos, so we run a not-for-profit as well as having our day jobs and our families and work in an industry that's um, not necessarily uh, supportive of diverse journos. So it's been hard. It's been hard for me, it's been hard for the team to try and maintain a career in journalism um, when so many redundancies are taking place, but also be critical of the industry. It's a really difficult position that you find yourself in. Like, you want to advocate for change, but you're worried about your job and you know you're making enemies along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for me personally, I've been a journo for over 10 years, and only now do I feel confident and comfortable enough in my strength in the industry to challenge it. Too, other, too many others would just have kind of cop it and um, just have to try and stay in the industry, or others are so disheartened that they end up leaving entirely because they don't think that there's a place for them. Um, so it's, 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 it's a difficult balancing act, and that's why I would say it's taken a while. So it's easier said than done, but how do we go about boosting representation of people from diverse backgrounds without tokenism? Look, and that's the difficult thing, and I think some of our recommendations is, in the first instance, you need to make the case for diversity and really and really believe it. And that's what we don't believe all the networks have done. Really believe that your product is going to be better, your workplace is going to be better, and your business is going to be better. If you have just ad hoc little strategies here and there, oh, we'll hire a brown person here, uh, we'll do one little thing there, that's going to feel token. So unless it's a whole of management, a whole of networking pr- approach, including representation at the highest level, then any gesture is going to feel really token. And um, the problem with token gestures or, you know, random appointments here and there, if that person doesn't thrive in that role or, or makes one mistake, everyone's going to go, oh, well, that's what you get when you box sick. Oh, that's all. We tried that brown people stuff. It didn't work. Um, and then people, you know, people who the naysayers or the skeptics just get their, their bias and prejudice reinforced. Um, so it needs to be long-term. It needs to be whole of organisation. And you really need to believe in it. And it needs to be slow. Because anything that's rushed is going to likely feel token and backfire. Antoinette, it's been a pleasure having you on. But before we let you go, we've just received one more text. Uh, someone's texted in saying, such a good conversation this morning. I think lack of diversity speaks to the lack of viewership and shifts in consumption when it comes to where people get their news. I think there's also a challenge with people wanting to hear from people like them, that tribalism is deep-rooted 
in the Australian psyche. Really interesting thoughts, uh, thoughts that may not have been shared had we not had you on the show today. So thank you so much for being on the show with us. Thank you so much. And I'm so glad that that person texted in because what we're trying to sell is an audience. Like this is the strong business case. There are people like you, like the person listening, um, and they want representation. So I don't know. I think smart leadership would absolutely lap it up. Absolutely. Thank you so much. That was Director of Media Diversity Australia, Antoinette Latouf, on why representation in Australian newsrooms needs more work. But don't turn that dial up next. Media lecturer Dr. Belinda Barnett gives us the rundown on Google's open letter against paid news. But first, this is Blonde by Australian TikToker and musician Peach. Stay tuned. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Back chat, your alternative to talk back. If you went to use Google or YouTube this week, you probably saw a strange pop-up that wasn't an ad. Yep, that's right. It was an open letter claiming the company is under attack by the Australian government. It also suggested our data could be at risk by new regulations proposed by the consumer watchdog. Is Google justified in making these claims or is there more to the story? Well, we're joined by senior media lecturer, Dr. Belinda Barnett, who's going to explain all of that for us. So thank you for being on the show with us, Dr. Barnett. No problem. So before we get into it, for those of us who haven't read Google's open letter, can you give us the cliff notes? (laughs) Sure. If the letter basically says that Google's services in Australia are at risk if the government continues with this legislation um, and encourages Google's users to kind of lobby the ACCC. Okay, and and can you tell us a bit more about the ACCC's proposed code specifically? What would it mean for Google? Right, so the ACCC came up with this code in order to kind of level the playing field between media outlets and large platforms like Google and Facebook so that these outlets could negotiate for a fair payment for news content. And when I say fair payment, it it would be a very small amount per piece, for example. So uh, Google doesn't like this at all because it would set a global precedent and it actually wouldn't cost them very much in the grand scheme of things if it occurred in Australia but if, say, another 70 company, another seventy countries around the world went, oh, look, uh, we've got media outlets too and we would like fair payment for content, then it might start to make a bit of a difference to Google's business model, for example. So what are some of the claims that Google has made in their open letter and the ones that have been questioned by the ACCC? Google, in the letter, doesn't actually say, we don't want to do this because we don't want to set a global precedent. What they say is, three claims. Firstly, that search is under risk. Secondly, that uh, user privacy is at risk because they'll have to hand over data about these news content pieces to uh, the search engine or to the platform. Um, And thirdly, that they just can't afford it. All three of those claims, I think, are fairly baseless. Um, Most obviously, the privacy claim. So Google's kind of saying... We value your data and we value your privacy. And if we have to hand over information about how you're reading a news article to a news outlet, we can't be sure of what they'll do with that data. Now, this is coming from 
one of the world's greatest privacy violators and certainly the largest data aggregator in the world, Google. And they're claiming, Mm. (laughs) it's a bit funny really, they're claiming that if they give the age information about how long you've been reading an article of theirs, that this is in some way dangerous to you. So I'd say that claim's a bit rich coming from Google and your data is actually more likely to be safe with The Guardian or with The Age than it is with Google. So it sounds like Google's letter isn't justified. Is this just a scare tactic for unassuming users? Yeah, that's what I think it is. I think they, they certainly object to this legislation, but not for the reasons that they're telling us. They object to it because it would set uh, a global precedent, as I said, and it would kind of tell the world that they are prepared to pay a small amount for content rather than just having content free. But what they're telling people, and they're also telling YouTube users, which is even more ridiculous, we can get into that because it's not covered by the legislation, but they're telling them this anyway. They're saying, your service is at risk and we can't afford this when they're one of the world's four largest companies, like a trillion dollar company, saying they can't afford $10 million per annum or whatever it will cost to um, make a small contribution to Australian media outlets. So ultimately, this is happening because Google's just a bit stingy and doesn't want to have to pay for the news in spite of, as you said, having trillions of dollars at their their disposal. Oh, absolutely. They do not want to pay for news content. And they don't want want to pay even a micropayment, even a a skerrick for news content, particularly in Australia, because Australia would be an example to the rest of the world. And then you've got much larger markets which are more financially relevant, more kind of important to Google, like the United States or um, the United Kingdom. So you're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swetha and Shami. We're speaking with Dr. Belinda Barnett on that open letter from Google you probably saw circling around the net this week. Now... Belinda, data security is a huge topic at the moment. In its open letter, Google said it could be forced to hand over people's data to big news businesses. Is the company using this fear over privacy and data to its advantage? Oh, yeah, it absolutely is. It's just, it's a bit rich coming from Google when Google is uh, a major privacy violator. And the other thing to remember about these claims of um user privacy violations is that this kind of data is collected by news outlets anyway and all they're asking is that if the same article is displayed on a Google server or on a Facebook server, can you send us the same data that we would collect if it was on our website anyway? So for example, how long you're reading it for, which particular article, that kind of information. It's not like Google's handing over your complete search history or, um, you know, anything like that. So is the ACCC's proposed code the first of its kind in the world or has Google responded to something similar in the past? It's not the first of its kind. So other countries have attempted it, uh, notably Spain and France. And what Google did in that situation is to straight away downrank the news outlets and to shut down Google in Spain, shut down Google News, completely so boot some of the outlets off and you know that's how they bypass the legislation in that country so what's different about australia 
is the ACCC is kind of heading that off at the pass. They have seen Google respond like that in other countries. So they've put uh, some text into the legislation that says, Google, if you intend to downrank or boot off news outlets as retaliation or in response to this, you need to give the outlets 28 days notice. And I'm not sure why they've chosen 28 days notice, but I think the intention is that the news outlet could then go to the ACCC and say, oh, look, Google's booting us off completely rather than paying us for content. What can you do about it? Mm. So Google hates that piece because it's got them in a corner. So understandably, they're feeling frustrated, understandably. They've got no way of retaliating and no way of getting out of it. I had no idea that Google could go this rogue. This is absolutely fascinating. So has Google taken further steps since its open letter? Uh, Yes. So the ACCC came out after the open letter and said that the open letter contains misinformation, which it does. Um, And Google responded by just digging its heels in and saying, well, actually bad for our business model because if we hand over proprietary information about our algorithm to news outlets, you will have an unfair advantage over other industries. They've kind of um, elaborated on the original arguments that they had. They've kind of dug their heels in. But more importantly, what they've done, and I think this is really wrong, it just strikes me as wrong, is that they have sent messages out to their uh, influencers on YouTube or people who have a channel with over a 1,000 subscribers all over the world, they sent this to them and said, YouTube is under threat. Your audience is under threat. Your income is under threat. You need to lobby the ACCC for us. So they're kind of, you know, telling the YouTube users that YouTube's under threat. It's not. It's not even... So revenue sharing is not even covered. YouTube's not covered Uh, The the platform isn't included in the legislation. So saying that their revenue is at risk, YouTube users, is actually complete misinformation. The ACCC document doesn't apply to to YouTube. And I don't understand how they can actually say this to their users and get away with it. So before we let you go, Dr. Barnett, uh, Facebook is also set to be impacted by the changes, I believe. Have they responded to this? No, they've been conspicuously quiet. They really have. So, uh, admittedly, the ACCC is focusing on Google in the first iteration, the first time around, but at the same time, Facebook will definitely be part of this legislation. And it struck me as a kind of odd that they have kept quiet this whole time. But at the same time, Google's kind of gone the opposite route and had a public tantrum about it. <laughs> Very interesting. Uh, I guess there's going to be a lot, a lot more to come out of the story. So thank you so much for breaking it down for us. Really love that. That was Dr. Belinda Barnett from Swinburne University of Technology about Google's open letter. Well, that's all the time we've got for the show today. And I got another big thanks to our producers, Natalie Sekolovska, Eden Faithful, Millie Roberts, Vanessa Lim and Nicole Ilya Guyeva. And thanks again to our guests, Antoinette Latouf and Dr. Belinda Barnett. We'll catch you all next week but before we do we're gonna play a song this is a bit of a throwback Mm -hmm. for my j cole fans this is no role models have a good weekend guys bye